Mic check? Mic check? How's that sound? I'm a little sick today, so I can't speak too loud. Um, yeah, I've been sick. Lottie's been sick. Kept me up all night. I left my keyboard and my mouse at, wor- at work, so I don't know who doesn't want the sermon to be preached, but whoever this is for, I pray that you, uh, you drink in it in full. So let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for this day that we can learn of the Lamb who's on the throne and what that means, Father, that the Lamb is enthroned, Father, um, that he is and is and is to come, Father, that he is our glorious Lord and our Savior. Father, be with us in the preaching of this sermon. Lord, may your spirit touch these depraved lips of mine and bring forth the purity of your word. And Lord, may your spirit be within the ears, Father, not simply the physical ears, Lord, but the spiritual ears of the mind and of the heart as this sermon gets preached. In your name we give you thanks. Amen. I didn't, for, I didn't uh, forget to take this off. I'm, I'm kind of in character, so I'm going to be in character for like the next uh, one or two minutes. And then, by the way, I know you guys have been sitting there, so you want to stretch. All right, I'm going to tell you a story. Is that good? All right. Then, that's where they came onto the property. They? Certainly, there were two. One inside and one outside. The inside man killed Wetherill, went upstairs to the bedroom, and lowered the safe from the loo window. The rope he used wore a line in the paint on the sill. The safe was on the rug in the corner near the bed, and I could see the outline of where it was because the rug was slightly darker color where the safe normally sat. He slid the safe across the floor on the rug. I could see the marks left on the floor by his hobnailed boots. And then he tied a rope around the safe and using the bedpost like a single sheave block, lowered it through the window to the outside man. The bed was cocked slightly, having been moved from the wall by the task. And when the safe came down, a corner of it dug into the flagstone. And before leaving, the inside man placed the rug back in its original spot, though I can't imagine why he bothered. I suspect you'll find the alarm and gun has been disabled, and the safe probably in the woods. Inspector MacLeish stared at Pitt with an astonished look on his face. I don't suppose you could describe the men, any distinguishing marks, anything like that? Pitt laughed. Sarcasm doesn't become you, Mac. I will tell you this, however. I suspect the inside man to be of average build that may walk with a slight limp. The scratches left on his right boot were more pronounced. Therefore, the right boot is worn and the nails more exposed. I think your close examination of the grounds when the fog has lifted would bear me out. What just happened? What is that? What's going on there? What? What do you think that is? Anyone want to take a guess? What what type of book do you think that comes from? Yes, very good. Sherlock, exactly. That comes from uh, the Sherlock Holmes adventure. Now, that's not Sherlock in there. The guy would say, man, between you and Sherlock, you guys are amazing. The guy in Pitt would be like, no, listen, I'm no Sherlock. Uh, But you guys obviously got that it is one of these detective-type stories, right? But there's a little bit of a problem. We have no idea what's going on, right? I mean, really, we have no context. We kind of just jumped into the story, and then we're kind of trying to put these pieces together. But what Pitt does is Pitt's a detective, and he does something where Sherlock calls the science of, uh, of deduction. Has anyone here seen the new uh, Sherlock show from the BBC? It's pretty awesome. I love that show. Right? I mean, I, I, I wish I could walk around and be like, aha, you know, you've got this and that. and bing and bing. But what we're seeing here is we're seeing here this type of um, you know, detective story. And in specific, the key question in there that he asks him 
is, were there any distinguishing marks? Now, why does he ask him if there's any distinguishing marks? What's the goal there? The, the goal is to find the culprit. In other words, like every mystery, every detective story, they usually all go the same. They all have the same exact formula, which is throughout the novel or throughout the story or the episode, the, the author is putting all of the evidence right in front of you, all throughout. But you, as the viewer, don't really know that those are pieces of evidence, so most of the time you just overlook them. And then it isn't until the very end that the detective or the Sherlock Holmes reveals, he takes all those pieces and he puts them together and he finds the identity of the person. It's the big aha moment. And then you're like, oh, that's why, you know, that guy had a strand, you know, of linen from, you know, the DKNY store on the bottom side of his boot. Oh, that's what it was, right? But the, but the key there is that in order to find the identity of the person, there has to be these distinguishing marks. And, of course, our word there, marks, is intentional. And, as you guys also saw, you need to have a context. I mean... I don't know about you guys, but like my mother-in-law, when she, uh, when she jumps in when, when, I'm, when we're watching something, she's the type of person that just starts asking all of the questions. You know what I mean? She starts asking everything, like, uh, who is that person? And I do the same thing whenever my wife is watching one of these girly shows that she watches. I'm pretending not to watch, because like I was, sit, I was laying in uh, the couch yesterday sick, and I'm kind of doing this thing, you know, trying not to be interested. But I'm, and then I'm asking questions, like, well, who's that guy? And what's happening there? You know, this, and I just want to get to the gist of it, but my wife is like, oh, you know, basically she goes all the way to the beginning and tells me everything finally to get to the point where she's like, yeah, and that's who that guy is. Well, our gospel of Mark is a lot like this. Now, what we're going to see, you can notice that the background color changed. We had that blue, and, and does anyone remember what our first punctuation mark was? It was the period, which means to go around, and for us that just symbolized that we were introducing ourselves to the, to the gospel. Well, now our mark has changed into the quotations. Does anyone remember where these quotation marks came from? From the lips, a quotation, a remark. So now what we're going to see is we're going to look at these quotations. What Mark is going to do in the first half of his gospel is he's going to make this case for the authority of Jesus. And in specific, what is his thesis? Remember that first verse that we had? The thesis of the work there's, there's two main points of the Gospel of Mark. The first is that he is the son of God, and the second is about discipleship. So he wants to show, he tells you right in the first verse that he wants to show that he's the son of God. And one of the ways he's going to do that, and this is how we're going to go through our sermon today, is kind of like a detective novel. In other words, you're looking for distinguishing marks. And like any, det any good detective story, you're not going to start in the middle of the book. Because you're going to have no idea what's going on, and a lot of times that's how we approach scripture. We'll read through Mark, a couple of verses, and we're just flying through there, and we have no context. So when it says things like, John the Baptist is eating locusts and wild honey and wearing camel's hair, we're like, well, that's pretty weird. But as we're going to see, all these pieces in the text that we're going to go through are distinguishing marks to help us identify the Son of God. The central truth of today's sermon is that Jesus fulfills the distinguishing marks of the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who will come to rescue humanity. Now, in our last sermon, was Mark 1.1, introduces the text, basically summarizes what he's going to be talking to us about. We have some type of a background now that we can work on, and our distinguishing marks, our marks, our punctuation marks, help us organize the text. So we're going to be in this one for about half of the book, the orange and the quotation marks, as if referencing back to the Old Testament. 
Now, we're not going to read the text as a chunk right now because we're going to go through it piece by piece. But the central truth of the text is that Mark wrote, Mark 1, 2 to 5, in order to identify Jesus as the Messianic Son of God who saves humanity and brings about the rule or kingdom of God. So, you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 2. We're going to be looking through Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 15 into four little pieces. And our first chunk is verse 2 to 8. And this part of the sermon is called the Messiah's Herald. We're going to look at four things as it relates to the Messiah as it helps us give us these clues in which we can identify him and his purpose. So Mark 1, 2 to 8. It's the longest of the passages, and it reads as follows. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. Yum. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, let's look at our pieces of evidence. There's a lot going on in there. And a lot of times we can just see that and say, well, okay, he quotes Isaiah, that's awesome, and then just skip through. But let's look at these pieces of evidence and what it tells us about, um, about Mark. And basically, you know, if you know your detective stories, there's usually three things they do. They look at clues, then they make observations, and then at the very end, they make a deduction from all that, like a conclusion. This is who it was, or this is what happened. So, our first, pieces of cl- our, our first clues are as follows. The term, who will prepare your way, the term wilderness, the term Judea and Jerusalem, and the term River Jordan. So let's look at that first one. Who will prepare your way? Now, I always get fascinated when I, when I do Bible studies and I just look at how you know, prophecy has, has, uh, has come about you know, and how Jesus fits this identity. So here's a passage from Isaiah 43. He says he quotes Isaiah, and he's actually referencing a couple different passages, but since Isaiah is such a prominent uh, prophet in in this text, he's going to say, you know, as as Isaiah wrote. And this is a passage from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Sounds exactly like, you know, he's paraphrasing the text there. And in specific, what's happening in Isaiah is Isaiah is occurring when they're in exile, and you know, the prophet Isaiah is giving them this hope that the Israelites in exile, that, they're going to, um, that God's going to restore them in this kingdom. Right? He's going to restore them. Almost as if you could say a new exodus. So this is a positive message, and what we see here is this reference to, Isaiah, this reference to the one who prepares. So next we're going to look at another verse. It's the same idea here. It's Malachi 3.1. And Malachi 3.1, what's happening in Malachi is they have returned from the exile. 
But these promises that were given about a new exodus, that were given throughout Isaiah, haven't come to fruition. So here we have Isaiah, and it's another tone. This becomes a tone of judgment, where the, the prophet Malachi is basically saying, you guys have ignored the Lord. That's one of the reasons why you know, these, these um, prophecies haven't come about. And he also says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So both texts, different angles. One is about giving them hope. The other one is about the judgment. But both of them are saying that someone's going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. One more example saying the same thing. This is from Exodus 23.20. And what's happening in Exodus? Well, you have the Exodus. So here, same idea. There's this prophecy here, not about the exodus that's occurring, but about a future exodus, a new exodus. And the author writes, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. So, in the gist, what are these clues telling us? These clues are basically saying that before the Lord comes to fulfill the promises that he's giving all throughout, specifically this promise of this new exodus, someone's going to come, this messenger. And in addition, we see that the word way is used in all three passages. It becomes an important idea all throughout the Old Testament, the preparation of the way, the right path. Christians, before they were called Christians, were called followers of the way. So here we have this idea. So... The author, Mark, quotes this text, and then who pops into the scene? John the Baptist. As if to say that John the Baptist is the individual who was promised. And it's really interesting, because when you get to the end of the Old Testament, um, it's kind of like, it's like the biggest like, cliffhanger. You, you can only imagine if you're the Israelites, right? If, if you're the Jewish people, you get to the end of the Old Testament, and it basically leaves with this, this cliffhanger of, like, to be continued. Like, that guy's, the prophet's going to come, who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, and that's it, you know? So now here is where Mark is starting at the beginning of this, this message. So our clues are basically, the, the clues there are prepare, um, prepare your way. Wilderness, Judea and Jerusalem and the river Jordan are making us think of an exodus. What happened with Joshua when Joshua was going through the river Jordan? Does anyone remember what happens there? Joshua's taking the people through the river Jordan, and what, and what occurs? Kind of like the Red, the Red Sea, right? But what parts the waters? Huh? What do they take to the middle of the River Jordan? Very good. And specifically, what does the ark represent? The very presence of God. An important, important theme. Because what did I just tell you guys in these passages? Did the passages say some awesome king was going to come and he was just going to like kick everyone's butt and have this political rule? No. Who does, who does the messenger prepare the way for? He prepares the way for the Lord. He prepares the way for God. So here we have, the, here we have John the Baptist coming into the scene. We have images of wilderness, which make you think of the Exodus. We have the river Jordan and the presence of God parting the river. And now comes into the scene John the Baptist. So here are our clues. This actually is like really like Sherlock Holmes, right? There's like camel's hair, there's like a dripping of like honey and the leg of a grasshopper. But 
Our next clues are camel's hair and leather belt. Why in the world would he be wearing this stuff? It obviously can't be very comfortable, right? I mean, I was thinking about coming here with a leather belt and with a, a, a robe of camel's hair, but I said, you know what? Forget about it, right? I ain't going to do that. That's too much commitment. I'll just flip my collar. Um, but the reason he gets described with these terms is because he wants you to think of a specific person. Jesus is going to confirm who this person is later in Mark, but let's do some more uh, CR. CRs are cross-references. Let's, let's look at the context. Where do our clues lead us? So our clues are camel's hair and leather belt, and this is what we find in Malachi 4.5. That's that same book towards, you know, after the exile when he's warning them of the judgment. He says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then 2 Kings 1.8 has this, They answer him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So what do you see here? You see John the Baptist, and who's John the Baptist identifying himself with? The, the, you know, the, the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. I mean, literally, this prophet. And you even have these stories of these prophets wandering around you know, out there in the wilderness and eating like whatever God gives them. So there he is, he's eating these locust and this wild honey, but in specific, he is dressed to intentionally make you think of Elijah, as if to tell you, you better get ready because somebody's coming. I mean, it's about to happen. What was promised to you Israelites all throughout the canon is about to, hammon, is about to happen. So our final set of clues are the terms, who is mightier than I, the term sandals, and the term Holy Spirit. So with this, our clues lead us to, again, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. We already read this verse, right? But I wanted to make sure that you guys understood who the messenger is preparing the way for. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for Yahweh, for Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Elohim. Isaiah 32, verse 15 says, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So, what's happening here, and the reason why the word Yahweh is so important, I mean, Remember, this word right here, this is like really funny in, uh, in Hebrew. These, these, are the, these are the vowels, right? These are the vowels. But what they did with the word Yahweh, because back then they didn't put, they didn't put vowels in, in the original Hebrew. Um, they didn't put the vowels until late, much later with these people called the Masorites. But because the name of the, of the Lord, because the name of Yahweh was so sacred, they put the wrong vowels on the word so you can pronounce it correctly. It's almost as if it's impronounceable, and that's where, Yahweh, that's where Jehovah comes from. But the word, originally, this is the word, this is the name of God, Yahweh. And then we have another identifier that is often used, Elohim. In other words, the guy who's going to prepare the way is preparing the way for Yahweh. So, now we make our observations based off of our evidence. And the main observation is, one, what Mark is trying to tell us is that this is the coming of the new exodus that's promised to us. And two, the one who's coming has kind of a unique identity. 
Because John the Baptist was not even worthy of what? Of untying his sandals. That's a practice that, not, that no Jew could perform. It was the Gentile slave's practice to untie the, uh, the sandals of the master and take them off. But it's interesting that he would use the image of sandals because humans wear sandals, right? But at the same time, all the verses that we're referencing to refer to Yahweh. So with those observations, we then get to verses 9 through 11. This is the Messiah's baptism. Mark 1, 9 through 11, and it reads as follows. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So, our clue for this section are these terms, spirit, voice, and beloved son. So, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. He's coming to prepare the way for the Lord. Specifically, what is he calling people to do? Repent and be baptized. Baptism being a confirmation of the publicity of your repentance. And he prepares the way for Yahweh, and who shows up? Who does the text speak of now? Jesus. He's preparing the way for who? Jesus. So, I mean, the, the canon is replete. I mean, the canon is saturated with terms that verify that Jesus is not just some, like, Hercules superhero, but that he is Yahweh. I mean, specifically, even as we see with his names, he is the presence of the Lord. And he is preparing the way for Jesus. And then Jesus arrives to the scene. And not only does Jesus arrive to the scene, but he gets baptized within the Jordan. Coming up, again, we have the image here of the ark in the Jordan. Now we have Jesus, the presence, the presence here in the Jordan coming up. That's one of the reasons why we as Baptists, we baptize by immersion, by dunking, because the word here, baptizo, means to dunk them in the water. And Jesus, what, comes out of the water, not sprinkled, but he comes out of the water. And then what happens? And then the Spirit descends upon him, and then a voice cries out. So our clues, Spirit, voice, and beloved Son. That leads us to Isaiah 11.2, which reads, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Another verse in Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what are our clues here of Spirit telling us? Is that this person who's going to come, this Messiah, I mean, one of the ways that we're going to know him is that the Spirit is going to descend upon him. In the Old Testament, we don't see the Spirit residing in people throughout their entire lives. The Spirit kind of just does these cameos. But with Pentecost and Acts, the Spirit is going to dwell within the church. The presence of God is going to be with all of us. But one of the confirmations of this character, this suffering servant in Isaiah, is that the Spirit of the Lord will descend upon him. In addition, this voice cries out, correct? Look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1, reads, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then, regarding the term beloved son, which again, remember we found in our first verse, the son of God, the thesis, the summary, 
the, the purpose of him writing the text. Here we have it that with his baptism, God the Father declares you know, that he is this son that's promised in the Old Testament. And for that, you could look at Psalm uh, chapters 2 and 3, which speak of this ruling king. So in Psalm, in Psalm 2-7, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The context of Psalm 2 is this kingly figure. This kingly figure who the kings of the world, they don't look like anything. I mean, as we were singing this morning, I was writing down some of the lyrics. Remember your people, remember your children, remember your promises. That's what's going on here. The promises of God are being fulfilled. The lamb upon the throne, we have this sacrificial king. And then above all powers, above all king, above all kingdoms, and above all thrones. Here the idea is that this is the true king of creation, the son of God. And then we have this verse at the end of the Psalm in 12 that says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what observations do we draw from this? Well, first of all, there's a pretty big claim in here. To say that Jesus is Yahweh, I mean, that is an immense, immense claim. You can't really, I mean, and this is all throughout you know, the New Testament, you'll find these type of references. But to say that Jesus is Yahweh, that the prophecy of the one who prepares the way for Yahweh, that that prophecy, you know, that pertains to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was, you know, pointing towards Jesus. What we have here is the very presence of God descending upon humanity. The next section is the Messiah's temptation, and this is in Mark verses 12 through 13 in chapter 1. The verses read as follows. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Our clues here are the language wilderness, 40 days, and tempted. So, since you guys are tracking with me, you, know, you can take out your magnifying glass. And you can give me some guesses. What would wilderness, 40 days, and tempted make you think of? The Exodus. What happened in the Exodus? Yeah, they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, how did they react? Complaining, right? The food wasn't hot after the service, you know, the love meal. So-and-so didn't wash his hands, right? Um, there was no ice. That's mine. Where's the ice? Uh, but, I mean, literally, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were just rescued from the Egyptians. And here they are wandering. And the very presence of God is evident to them. And what are they doing the whole time? Complaining. Ah, at least when we were back home, you know, we could, we could have eaten, you know, the, the crumbs that we had. So they failed. And that's basically the narrative that you'll find all throughout the Old Testament is this time of testing over and over and over again, whether it be Exodus, whether it be the nation of Israel, whether it be them in exile, or whether it be like Malachi is talking about them returning from exile, they continue to rebel. Or like you see at the end of Judges, they all just did whatever they wanted to. And this passage in Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3, we won't read through it, but basically we see this same concept. 40 days, Jesus is going as if Jesus is identifying himself as true Israel. And Israel is one of the only terms in the Old Testament that gets referred to as the Son of God. So what we see here is Jesus is identifying himself as Israel. And where they had faltered, where they had failed in their temptation, Jesus had not. And in specific, Jesus 
was there with the very presence of the Spirit to guide him through his ministry. So our clues, wilderness, 40 days, tempted. The observation that we produce from that is that Jesus is the true identity of Israel here. He is the presence of God. He succeeds where they had failed, and in specific, where we all fail. Finally, our last passage, the last part of our sermon is the Messiah's message. So we've looked at all these different pieces of evidence. We've tracked through, and now we have a better context to understand why is John the Baptist wearing camel's hair, and why is this emphasis on him being in the desert for 40 days fasting? We have now a context in which to deduce, to make our deductions, of what is the gospel, the kingdom of God, and the Son of God. And what we see is after these episodes, before Jesus is going to go out and start you know, doing his ministry, start verifying his authority, Mark is going to summarize us his message, the Messiah's message. And this is what we find in verses 14 and 15, and it reads as follows. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Deduction number one, the gospel of God. Notice that it is the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. And gospel means good news. This is the good news of God and about God. And you see this verified when it talks about the kingdom of God. It is not simply the kingdom. It is not simply us getting together and doing really nice things for people. That's how we extend the kingdom. No, this is God's kingdom. In specific, the term kingdom in there is a little bit foreign for us because when we hear kingdom, what do we think of? The kingdom of Saudi Arabia? The United Kingdom? We think of territorial boundaries. But back then, this idea kingdom would translate better into the word reign. In other words, all throughout the Old Testament, we're being promised the reign of God. Where the Israelites and where the, the Pharisees are going to fail is they're going to interpret this as simply being a really awesome kingdom. Even after they get to the promised land and they have you know, the 12 nations after all this stuff, the nation still crumbles because they don't understand that the reign of God is prophesied as being something so much greater. That verse about the descending of the Spirit, you have this promise of a new heart. Not a heart of, of rock, of stone, but a new heart. And the promise of the temple is not an even bigger temple than the one in the Old Testament. The promise of the temple is the promise of the presence of God. And that's what you see in Habakkuk. That's what his thesis is. And who is the presence of God? Jesus. Because who does John the Baptist prepare the way for? Yahweh. And who then arrives to the scene right after this prophecy? Jesus. So then what is the gospel. So we looked at the gospel of God. This is the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we looked at the kingdom of God, which is the reign of God. This is the permeation of the reign of God. God's reign is coming, his rulership. And it's not coming in full, as we're going to see. Remember the parentheses? The parentheses, what the parentheses are going to help us understand is that it's coming in steps and stages. But here we're seeing a spiritual fulfillment of the reign of God within our hearts. And his proclamation is to repent and to believe in the gospel. Repentance and then belief in the gospel. And in specific, what is the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus has arrived, the promised Savior. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, repent and believe in me. And that's exactly what we're going to see all throughout Mark. We're going to see it with the disciples. We're going to see it with his interactions. 
you may have gleaned from all those texts these, these, er, these almost esoteric references to opening the eyes of the blind, preaching to the poor. I mean, don't those things sound familiar, like the Beatitudes, that he's going to heal the brokenhearted, that, that, he, that he is going to baptize. John the Baptist says, I can baptize you in water as a symbol here of your repentance. But Jesus is going to baptize you with the Spirit, the, the promised helper that he sends on Pentecost. So, to summarize, you could almost look at these different stages as some pretty probing questions in relation to the gospel in our lives. In specific, the concept of wilderness does not end in the Old Testament, and it does not end with Jesus going out for his 40 days fast. The wilderness is a concept that extends all throughout. Just because we don't have deserts doesn't mean that the wilderness is here in Raleigh. And human beings spend their lives wandering around in this wilderness, searching for meaning, searching for something that they can consume that can fill their stomach. But as C.S. Lewis was telling us, what they find instead is that this vacancy, this vacuum within the depths of their very souls, this emptiness cannot be filled unless one is within the kingdom, creation as it was designed. So my question then is, have you found yourself wandering in a wilderness? Are you lost? as humanity is lost, pursuing its own agenda, trying to proclaim itself as king, or as the Psalms second tells us, I mean, the, the vanity of all of these earthly kings saying that they have some type of rulership in comparison to the reign that is being introduced here with the arrival of Jesus. And the response to that is, if you are lost and if you are wandering, then to turn to the way. I mean, that's your first step, is to turn to the right way to turn to the proper direction, because as you'll see with any direction, any deviation from true north, any deviation from 12, any deviation from straight will only lead you further and further away from where you were designed to go. So the first thing you do is you need to turn to the way. But there's a problem. Even if you were to turn to the way, even if you were to look down, as we can see with you know, some of these Olympic games that are going on over in Sochi, you, know, you got your path. But you know what? Even if you were turned in the right direction... If you don't do what, you can't win. If you don't push yourself down that slot, you can't win, right? Well, the idea here is not that you can rescue yourself, but what John the Baptist is calling for us to do is to turn to the right and to repent. And what is repentance? Repentance is the admission that you are not your own savior, that you are a sinner, that you have sinned before God. Malachi has that emphasis there of justice, and justice and God's grace are his character. There's not one without the other. So do you wish to partake of this journey, but you're weighed down by sin? Well, what John the Baptist and what Jesus tells us is to repent. And baptism is a symbol, a public symbol and a public affirmation that we have repented and that we wish to join the body of Christ. So perhaps you have repented, perhaps you, know, you have turned towards the way and you have embraced the gospel, but still, still you are experiencing temptation. Even in the life of a believer, you are experiencing temptation. What you should then be reminded of is that no temptation that you have endured has not been experienced by Christ. He experienced the fullness of all temptation. Here, the reigning king of heaven and earth experienced the same temptations that you experience. But, unlike us, he was sinless. And he was able to endure. And furthermore, he endured those temptations on our behalf. And not only that, 
How glorious is it that the same helper that he had in the wilderness, the spirit, is the same spirit that he leaves us, the church. So even in the midst of your temptation, for me this weekend it was the sickness, right? Leaving my keyboards, etc. Even in the midst, he promises me the spirit to be my guide and my helper. And finally, do you wish to help advance this kingdom by the power of the spirit? So what we see here is he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And specifically, as we're going to see, the gospel is a person. It's not some you know, idea that floats around, but it is an identity, a relationship, an actual person, something that is fundamental to our own humanity, which is having relations, communicating, and he is the very word that illuminates all reality. He tells us, the church, to call people to what? At the end of Matthew 28, he asks them to to baptize and to make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here we see Jesus summarizing that he calls us to extend the boundaries of the kingdom and that he empowers us by the Spirit. So our final deduction is this. What we see in all these clues, and what we're going to see in the next chapters, as Jesus' identity is going to be affirmed in his actions, whether it's healing the blind or it's feeding the multitude, what we see... Right? As, as, um, as the story that we, are, that we initiated the sermon with, what was the question he asked him? After he made his, his crazy observations about you know, the windowsill being, you know, the paint being rubbed off, and after being able to calculate him, what did the police officer ask the detective? Did he have any distinguishing marks? Why? Because you know what's going to happen in the end of that story. That guy's going to become hobbling in, in some you know, environment, and the detective's going to recognize it and see you know, the scratch thing, and, and then he's going, to get, he's going to get arrested. But Jesus is not a culprit. Jesus is a savior. And what the distinguishing marks are and why they're so important is because they help us identify who Jesus is. Not just a man, but fully God and fully man. The one that's enthroned, but the one in sandals, and the one who saves us. So if you can close your eyes and pray with me. Father, we're so thankful, Lord, that you have not left us to wander in the wilderness. But, Father, instead, you crown us, Father. You crown us above all creation to go forth into the slums of our society by the empowerment of your spirit to proclaim the grace and salvation of your Son, the Son of God, the Savior of all creation. Father, may your spirit saturate our every hour. Father, if we are... If we are wandering from you, Father, if we are lost in the wilderness, Father, if we are trying to make our own way in this life, then, Father, may your spirit convict us and aid us in turning to you in repenting and proclaiming to the world that Jesus is our ruler. In your name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. Final note is towards the end of the slides, there's a couple questions. During our meal, if you want to ask each other two or three of those questions, kind of review the sermon, you know, and this is all part of discipleship. The back and forth that we're going to see with Jesus and the disciples is the type of back and forth that occurs here. So those are some of the questions, and you're more than welcome to just do two or three of them. Thank you. Let's all stand.